You're listening to the Strong Towns Podcast. everybody. This is Chuck Marone. Welcome back to the Strong Towns podcast. Jarrett Walker is the head of Jarrett Walker & Associates, a transit planning firm based in Portland, Oregon. He's been a consultant in public transit network design and policy for many decades now, working across North America, but also in Europe, Russia, Australia, New Zealand. He's the author of the book, Human Transit, How Clearer Thinking About Public Transit Can Improve Our Communities and Our Lives. And of course, uh, you can read his blog, humantransit.org. Jarrett, welcome back to the Strong Downs Podcast. Hey, thanks, Chuck. It's always great to be back with you. Happy New Year. It's nice to see you again. And uh, Happy yeah. New Year. And thank you for the cookies. That was such a wonderful surprise. <laughs> oh, we don't want to announce that to too many people because they've oh, become hot items at, at some point. <laughs> so I'm glad if I could indulge your sweet tooth a little bit. I only briefly thought of tweeting, hey, world, if you're very nice to Chuck Marone, they'll send you cookies. <laughs> I think I did like 40 different plates and, and boxes this year. It is a delight. Uh, some people are annoyed by it because they're on a diet and they, they don't like it. But uh, generally, people appreciate the fact that I actually baked all those myself. So that was, that was my time in the kitchen. Yes. And I'm glad, uh, I'm glad you enjoyed it. <laughs> yes, I could. Im- I could imagine the warm smells coming out over the snow. And, uh, oh my gosh! Sort of yeah, the Christmassy feeling of that. I want to ask you a question before we get started. I did not realize that you have a PhD. Mm-hmm. I mean, I know you're a smart guy, and I know you got a lot going on. What's your PhD in? My PhD is is in well, it's technically um, theater arts and humanities. It was a broad training in uh, literature and history, but I was a Shakespeare scholar. That's fascinating. Mm-hmm. Oh. Now I want to talk to you about that sometime. Sure. <laughs> um, Jerry, you wrote a journal piece back in 2018 for the future of public transportation, a special issue for the Journal of Public Transportation. The title of this piece is called To Predict with Confidence, Plan for Freedom. It, it's been on my desk for a while. And when I was cleaning my desk at the end of the year, as I'm apt to do, I came across it again and, and read it for like the fourth time and said, we need to chat about this. Thanks for for taking the time. I want to give you a a chance up front to talk a little bit about the limitations of predictions. And I don't know if you recall the story that you wrote in here about Houston, but could you you recount that for people? Because I think it would be interesting for people to hear from a professional what I, I think may sound a little scandalous, but I think you and I know is not. No, it's not scandalous at all. So about seven, eight years ago now, I was on a team. We were doing the developing the proposed redesign of the bus network in Houston. And we had all this analysis done. We could show all these benefits to all these people, all these ways that these would make so many people's lives better. And, and I was intentionally not talking about ridership prediction. And I'll, I'll show why. I get up in front of the board and I'm explaining all this. And the Board chairman asked me, so what will the ridership be? And so I say, look, ridership's affected by a whole bunch of things, right? Ridership goes up and down with the economy. It goes up and down with gas prices. It goes up and down with all kinds of other things. You know, It's impossible to 
to just predict it. It's too noisy. And he said, oh, come on, you're a professional. You must have some idea. And so right there they've been watching me, I said, plus 20% after two years, net of all other factors. And he was satisfied. He sat back and his needs had been met. And, but I had said net of any other factors. In other words, what I was saying was, I predict that ridership will be up 20% in two years if absolutely nothing else happens in the history of Houston. Nothing happens in the economy. Absolutely everything remains exactly as it is. Obviously, two years later, there was no way to predict that, to judge that prediction as having been wrong or right, because all kinds of things had happened. And there was no way to separate that out. There was no way to separate out the actual effect of the network redesign from all kinds of other things that happened at the same time. You know, in the end, we thought we had a good story. The Houston economy took a devastating shock in that right after we implemented the plan because um, oil prices um, went way down. The oil industry took a nosedive right then, which affected Houston in a particular way that you couldn't really compare it anywhere else. No, no, but there it is. So the point is, what he wanted wasn't a fact because there was no fact. What he wanted was for me to perform the role of responsible expert, which in our culture is performed through making predictions. He was not going to care any more than anyone else was about whether the prediction was right or wrong, even two years out. I could say we'll never know if it was right or wrong, but in fact, it isn't even meaningful to say, to ask whether it's right or wrong. It's right in the sense of, I can say forever that, well, if history had stopped and nothing else had occurred for two years, then, then it would have been right, but you can never know. So the point of all that is just that is I, I want people to notice how much of the conversation that goes on around them about transportation is a conversation about predictions and is about authority we assign to certain people based on their um vaguely alchemical means of making predictions, this strange thing that only they could do. And that when we're talking about that, we're actually not talking about what we want our community to be. We aren't talking about our own goals. We aren't talking about different choices we could make as a community. We're instead deferring to this expert whose expertise is supposedly marked by their willingness to make predictions. And one of the things you'll notice, and I'm sure you, you remember this plenty in your own career, Chuck, I remember various times having a conversation as part of some larger team run by engineers. And, and I would say, well, now you could arrange this this way, you could run this line over here and you could connect this like that. And, and one of the engineers will say, well, that's really interesting. We'll have to see how it does. <laughs> of course, he goes, he did not mean build it and see what happens. He meant to see what his predictive model does with it. And right, just, right. he uses the, you know, he uses the present indicative as though the pre, what his model says is, is reality will be the proof of whether it works or doesn't. And so I just wanted to say, wait a minute. Are you sure you want to give these people this power? Are you sure you want to give me this power? Or maybe do you want to say, wait a minute, maybe the most important thing about the future is are the decisions that we make about this community. 
about what we want. It feels a lot like saying, and I want to read a quote out of this piece and have you react to it, but react to this first. It feels a lot like we're saying, I look at a 20 year old young man, young woman, and they say, you know, I, I'm going to project that you will live to 78, assuming you don't get hit by a car, you don't get cancer, you don't smoke, you don't, you know, whatever. The reality is that, you know, maybe in aggregate, we could say some things that we know statistically, but for you or for your project or for your specific road or for your, it's either a form of hubris or a form of hucksterism to suggest that, like, I can look at you and say, here's the exact date that Jarrett Walker will live to, you know, with any degree of confidence. Is, is that a fair analogy? But all through history, we've been fascinated by people who, who have the guts to say things like that, right? Right. You know, this is ancient stuff. You think about the role of the Oracle of Delphi in ancient Greeks. You think about how there have always, in pre-modern societies, been this shaman character or this oracle character or this or whatever who is believed to be empowered with certain abilities capabilities of prediction and how often the deal that people make with their deities has something to do with you know i'll worship you and in return i get some predictability right 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 um, <laughs> and because we just want prediction so bad you know think about it one of the reasons this this is a this is a gentle and loving kind of critique is that there's no way we're going to get around the fact that human beings are desperate for prediction. Your kid first learns to talk, and and what do they start saying? It's like, when will daddy come home? You know, they want predictions. Yeah, and we're going through predictions all you know, demanding predictions all our lives. The fact is, we can't predict the future very well. There are things we can predict, but there are actually more things that we can predict than you would think. But they're not things on the line of sort of how's this technology going to work out or, you know, what's going to be the next trend and whatever. The sorts of predictions that you would use to make investments. No, we can't do that. I just wanted to say, let's honor the fact that although prediction is bound up culturally right now in professional expertise, it's actually an emotional need we have that has nothing to do with that. It's the need for an oracle. It's the need for, you know, someone that we can put up there who will give us a prediction, who we can then blame, of course, also as part of the deal. Can um, I read your quote? I thought this line was so good. You write in this piece, making predictions, even untestable ones or ones that nobody will care about later, are part of the cultural process for establishing authority. That's right. That's right. And one of the sort of contrarian things about me and my career is that I just done my best to not do that. Right. And what I've done instead is this rather thankless process of saying, now, wait a minute, what can we really predict here? Before we get to that, yeah. you have a really great middle part of this piece where you kind of go through and say, here's the things that we can proceed with confidence on. I want to tie in something that you didn't talk about in this piece, which I know you, you know a lot about, which is just automobile traffic projections. Mm -hmm. I can't remember the exact words that I used in my recent book, but I, I know it was something along the same lines as you're talking about with an Oracle and you might as well, you know, consult goat entrails than the predictive models that we use. Have you witnessed and how do you ascribe, I think, the confidence that 
traffic engineers often will come to the table with in terms of not just the degree of traffic that they will predict for the future, but also, you know, the, the literally billions of dollars that they say are needed in order to avoid calamity, reach certain goals. Can you just from your perspective assess that that ritual when it comes to automobile transportation? Sure. The ritual is, first of all, that there's a master metaphor, which in the case of traffic is the idea that traffic is like flood water and that you can predict, you can predict, okay, so new development occurring out here is basically like knowing that it's going to rain, rain more than usual or whatever. And, you know, we need resilience for more flooding. That's the sort of metaphor that even though it's wrong, it just sounds so right. And it's so easy to explain and you can explain it to anybody, and you, you don't even have to state, hey, this is a metaphor. You can just start using those terms like flow and capacity and volume, and everyone's with you, and they're not even aware that you're, you're pretending that traffic is the same thing as fluid dynamics. We know that's wrong. We know that's wrong because of the process of induced demand, and induced demand is and here's what's interesting, and this is very timely. I just wrote a post about induced demand, and I, it started an interesting conversation on Twitter. My contention, which I've also, I think, outlined in that paper, was say, what is induced demand? Induced demand is the fact that if you make something easier, people will do it more. So induced demand, you know, you widen the highway, and it is, for the moment, faster to drive down the highway. So... More people choose to drive down the highway, but more powerfully, more stuff gets built on the highway to take advantage of that higher travel speed effectively until it generates enough demand to more or less take the highway back to something close to its previous level of congestion. As a result, what your highway widening achieve? It got you more mobility. People can go, but it's not actually getting people to places they need to go any sooner, particularly because the highway helped for those places you need to go to, to move further away from you. But the core idea of induced demand is interesting because one of the response to my tweet referred to as, as an 81-year-old traffic law. And most of the other respondents went right into the question of, okay, but what's the elasticity? Exactly how bad is induced demand? How, what is it? And I was just watching this happening and thinking, this isn't the question I asked. The question I'm asking is, why are we sure that induced demand happens? And in particular, do we need to do the experiment? And I'm arguing that we do not actually need to do the experiment, even though your highway department does the experiment you know, every year somewhere. We don't actually need to do this experiment because we can actually think about this as a basic fact of biology, that what is an organism, an organism is a thing that needs resources. Anything we recognize as an organism needs to get resources from its environment. And it's getting those resources so that it'll have some energy. And it needs to get those resources spending less energy than it will get from those resources. It needs to run a positive balance sheet. Okay, well, human beings are organisms, they're going to get the things they need in the most energy efficient possible way. And that means they'll do what's easiest. There's nothing needs to be explained about that. It would be astonishing if, if human beings did anything else because we're organisms before anything else. And But it's a little spooky to be out there saying, wait a minute, 
You mean we don't need the socials, all the human sciences? Well, not for this. <laughs> you can go all kinds of great places with greater subtlety with the human sciences. I don't want to erase the human sciences, but it's just there's a level of certainty we have way back here <laughs> about the fact that induced demand just has to happen because it would be nonsense biologically if it, if it didn't happen, if people didn't do the easiest thing. So that's the sort of thing I'm trying to do and what I'm trying to do with the, the big thought experiment in this paper is to really say, how much of this is really empirical? How much of this is really requiring more studies and more experiments? Because as we all know, much of the dynamic that leaves citizens feeling so helpless is sitting in a room as experts deploy empirical analysis. And the citizen can't find, can't see clearly the point at which there is a valid space for doubt. And my job, I've always felt in my work, is to, is to open up that space. I want people to see exactly what we're sure of, what we're sure of because it's geometry or math or just basic biology. And then if we're going to talk about something that's empirical, it's resulting in human sciences, I want to label it that way. Because once we're in the human sciences, there's a lot more room to have different interpretations and different experiments with different results. You know, we know about the replication crisis in psychology. I'm not in any way putting down the human sciences to say that can't be the only kind of authority. And it's not valid to make a human sciences insight like, you know, economists are always doing, right? And to state that as though it were a law, right, in the way that gravity is a law. Right. It's fascinating to me because I think a lot of people who hear engineers talk about traffic projections assume that that is derived out of mathematics. Mm -hmm. In other words, there's a there's an equation that you can mathematically solve that will give you an answer as opposed to a base set of theoretical insights and assumptions on human behavior or or lack of reflection or assumptions on human behavior that that give you an answer. I'd like to stay on automobiles for a second, but I think what I'm going to ask you will help us bridge over to, to transit and some of the other discussions that you had in this piece. I have seen a number of traffic projections where they will say in you know 10 years or 20 years, here's the capacity we project on this roadway. And when you look at that projection, it is physically more than the volume of the roadway would be capable of handling. And in other words, they're assuming something that from a just a physical constraint standpoint is impossible to achieve. How does that conundrum come about? And, and how should we respond to that or, or, or hear that as people who are listening to professionals say this stuff? Simply the dynamic of induced demand runs in both directions. And we know as an axiom of biology that when something gets easier, people will do it more. And consequently, when something gets harder, people will do it less. I remember having a, this classic argument in front of a client with a big traffic engineer in Australia who was telling me, in the year 2040, this is the number of cars that will be crossing the Harbor Bridge. And I was saying, no, they won't because there isn't room. And he was saying, but this is the demand. And I was saying, no, but that's not what will happen. So let's let's plan for something that could happen physically. Let's plan for something that's geometrically possible. It was comic, I think, ultimately comic for both of us, because we were all saying that we were just sort of in our, in our boxes. It was very funny for the client. Traffic projections are 
a great example, and you know, you've told so many of these stories, Chuck, yourself, of being in a profession where you're required to predict something. I want to put this as, as charitably as possible because I don't think people doing this are evil at all. They're in a position where their professional success relies on predicting things. So they have to make predictions. And any prediction involves holding a whole bunch of other assumptions constant about what's not going to change between now and the year you're talking And those assumptions are nonsense, and we all know them. And you take any of these people out for a beer and turn off your phones, and they'll tell you that. <laughs> right, right. Um, yep. but, you know, they'll tell you that. They know that. But it's like we're all stuck in this ritual where we have to pretend that we can see that for in the future. I mean, you think about, you know, so much of what goes into major infrastructure. You know, you're talking about projections 20, 30 years in the future. Now, that's a great example of a projection that nobody 20, 30 years from now is going to go look that up. Or if they do, and now and then people do go and look up reports that are that old and, and chuckle at how wrong the projections were. But it's like, that's oh, fine. We both the thing, you know, who cares? So, you know, we all know that it's not really about being right <laughs> because it's not testable. It is instead about being authoritative. Often, as somewhat of a right version, often that's about getting funding too, because mm -hmm. exactly. to get funding, you are required to do projections. That's always seemed like a silly dance to me, right? The question is always then, I guess this is where I'm going with the paper, is well, what would you do instead? If you go back to that bridge, where you've got the engineer saying, here's the amount of traffic that will be there. And you're saying, well, the, the bridge can't handle that much traffic. So no, that's not physically possible. It feels like what you're doing is starting with the physically possible mm -hmm. and then using that as the basis to ask a different set of questions. Is that a, is that a fair way to frame exactly the approach you've laid out here? Yeah. We've, Talk about that then. We've done the experiment plenty of times, plenty of times of not satisfying the demand. We've done the experiment plenty of times of just letting a choke point exist and or letting congestion get really bad. And what happens is that people adjust their lives in all sorts of other ways so that life is possible without creating a demand that exceeds the capacity. You think about the way, you know, long before work from home, long before the pandemic, there were efforts made to get employers to spread out their hours a little more so that not everybody was commuting right at the same moment and creating this maximum capacity. One of the places that had got further ahead with, with that was Los Angeles. In Los Angeles, you didn't really need to tell people to do it. It was just kind of really obvious that there was no other way for anything to function because the, the city was so congested and so cursed with large distances. People are always adapting to their situation. People are making location choices in response to their situation. You know, our traffic engineer didn't consider the fact that if, if all the cars that he visualized couldn't get across the Harbor Bridge, then some of the people in those cars would never move north of the Harbor to begin with. <laughs> they just wouldn't live over there, right? In a 20, 30 year time frame, there's, there's time for all that to be worked out. Right. Let me delve a little bit into the geometry and physics kind of argument that you're, you've made in this piece. The biology analogy is one that I can get my mind around, but I think is often difficult for people who, for some reason, put humans in a mechanistic 
rational kind of place. You know, like we 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 function more like an automobile machine than uh, than an ecosystem. And and you know, anyone who's read their Kahneman knows how silly that is. You do make the case, and I've seen you make this case in in other places, that you know, geometry defines urban space. The fact that we are going to gather together in a place sets up certain limitations about how many other things can be in that space at the same time. It sets up certain feedback loop dynamics where the cost of getting to that space, getting away from that space, occupying that space goes up. Can you talk about some of these physical limitations and how it should drive the way we think about things like efficiency and utilization and, uh, and productivity? Okay. Let's see how simple we can make this. Once we're in a city, the definition of a city is lots of people close together. Therefore, a city is a place that has very little space per person, which means that the problem of a city is a problem of sharing space. Pure geometry so far, right? No human yes. scientists. I'm just talking through the geometry. The supply of space. Okay. Cars are a way of taking a lot of space per person. Therefore, a city dependent on cars cannot move very many people in the limited space it has. Therefore, lots of people can't get where they're going. So once you track that, and once you track that every step of that is pure geometry, there's nothing there that came from doing an experiment that we can then go argue about. Your research methods, right? None of that. It's just a geometric deduction. Now you're over the line to the point to be able to say that, to be able to identify what kinds of solutions to this problem count as actual solutions. And so, for example, Elon Musk comes along very helpfully and says, the problem is just that we need to add more lanes in the form of underground road tunnels. So we look at that. And we, so we take what I just described, we combine that with the biological principle of induced demand, and we can deduce that that's not going to work. We did not need to do this experiment. I use that example just because, you know, one of the great challenges we have is that there is so much venture capital out there that cannot do this kind of thinking. And that therefore is constantly, you know, inflating ideas that really aren't that bad. <laughs> but that's why. I find, for me, and if nothing else, holding on to that kind of thinking, that kind of that kind of axiomatic thinking, being very careful about what it is, and being very clear in your mind when you are when you are having that sort of thought, um, is 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 the only way I'm, I maintain any kind of, of certainty, and also it's the only way I also make sure that when I'm speaking as an expert. I can never completely not be speaking from my culture, of course, but I am trying as much as possible to define the space in which it's up to the community to solve the problem and yeah. help people see what their options are. Because, of course, the other thing that you and I both know, Chuck, is that the data never tells you what to do. Right? Even if you have an airtight description of facts, that's never that never tells you what to do. That's where values step in, and that's where I, as a consultant, step back and very intentionally don't try to guide that conversation, apart from just keeping it within the bounds of what's real. Let me go down this Elon Musk rabbit hole just a tiny bit. 
I feel like it ties into one of the the pushbacks or the natural responses that people are going to have to what I think is a very obvious set of principles you're putting forward. And that is that we could just build more. I mean, with, with Elon Musk, it's like, well, if we just need more lanes, we just put them in, you know, I like, I, I don't know what the constraint is. You just go another layer deeper, go another layer deeper than that. Um, mm-hmm. And you're telling me that it'll be induced demand. Let's just, let's just build until we've out built the demand. And I think that as an engineer, we're kind of taught that that is the, that is actually where you go with it. It seems to me that a lot of the engineering equations and engineering projections only work in a world where you have the ability to build unlimited capacity. So, so no one at any point in time is constrained by any capacity, you know, limitation. Mm-hmm. I feel like financially that that is like an insanity, right? And and I, I struggle with this maybe to get through to the professionals that I interact with. And and I would put Elon Musk in this, you know, as the as the billionaire dreamer in that in that bucket. Because one of the things that I think people are attracted to about Elon Musk is this idea that there's no constraint right like i'm a visionary i'm a free thinker i'm i'm not going to be limited by the the constraints that you humans uh, you know my my fellow humans would put on things and where does that cross the line when we're talking about public policy between you know the boldness that i think often we want to see in our, in our leaders and an insanity that you know, really will 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 drive us in many ways to madness, but certainly to lower degrees of happiness and productivity and and uh, you know great spaces. That, that was a long question, but I think you see what I'm getting at here, right? Yeah, and I think that you know it's helpful always to be able to interrogate your own motivations as a consumer of these various messages. Elon Musk has put himself as for as a heroic figure. There is a known, that's a well-established job in Western culture. It has a job description. There's lots of books about, uh, you know, lots of cultural history about how to enact that role. There are lots of people that want that. There are lots of people that want there to be a smart person and visionary person in charge so that I won't have to think about this myself. Or so that I can look to him to show me what's good or bad or what I should believe or what I think what I shouldn't believe in. Um, obviously, lots of people want that. It's not what I encourage. You know, my work is all about helping citizens feel empowered. And the trade-off is that you want to feel, if you want to feel empowered, you are going to have to think for yourself <laughs> and think in your community. But, you know, think about the actual choices that are before you in actual reality. Look, we all know there's no such thing as an unconstrained anything. It's a constrained planet. It's a constraint. Everything is constrained. Very often when you hear that kind of language coming from Silicon Valley, what it really means is just throw me in a lot of money and, you know, I'll be able to build a lot of these and it will feel unconstrained for a while. Well, that's exactly how it felt for the first few months after we widened the freeway. (laughs) You know, the same thing, you know, induced demand will always kick in in the end. You know, it's easy. It's easy to just to, to, to look at the world and say, you know, the whole idea of you know creating a space for citizens to think for themselves about reality is just hopelessly romantic and naive. But yeah, it's the only way 
it's, it's the only way I know how to do it. So I'll keep doing it that way. As a substitute for, I'm going to use the word fake projections or projections we know to be wrong, or, or I even have gone as far as to say, you know, projections that corrupt our thinking as a profession, you actually propose this idea of freedom as being something that we could strive for collectively as citizens. I want to read this just one line that you wrote. You wrote, rather than trying to predict what people will do, what if we tried to maximize what they could do? Can you talk about that shift in thinking and and why that's an important one that kind of transcends? To me, it gives us very clear marching orders, but far outside of the, the modeling and prediction realm. Right. So what I mean by freedom here is specifically all of the kinds, all of the aspects of personal freedom that involve leaving home, all of the freedoms that we value to do something that involves leaving home and therefore entering into the transportation system and going somewhere. Your freedom to do those things is constrained for everyone by travel time. And then for some people, by other, uh, in addition, by other constraints, there are constraints of cost. There are particular constraints that people with different abilities have. But the first order estimate is, ta- is travel time because everybody has 24 hours in the day. Everybody experiences the same scarcity of time. And I simply point out that if you can't go places in an amount of time you have in your day, then you can't do the things that happen at those places. And the fewer things you can do, the less free you are. Freedom is, in this sense, the presence of meaningful, contrasting options for what you could do. It's not insignificant that when people dealing with who can't drive and are in Uh, and have no good transportation options, start describing themselves as being imprisoned at home. That's a very telling metaphor because we understand that, and sometimes we understand things better by their absence, that when I am talking about this freedom to go, I am talking about something that is the exact opposite of imprisonment. And imprisonment is our go-to metaphor for describing its absence. If you are not able to go out into your community. There are all kinds of things you can't do, people you can't meet, uh, opportunities that will never arise for you. And we can measure that. So we can measure, for example, and Charles, if you want, I'll, I'll give you a link that you can plug in at some point here. We can measure where you are and where you could get to in a reasonable amount of time in the amount of time that you're likely to have for a particular trip. And yeah, there are some assumptions that go into that, but the assumptions are less confounding, much are, are infinitely less confounding than the assumptions that go into actually predicting people's behavior. A lot of it's based on, you know, physical geometry. Like I can walk. We're, we're describing what's possible. Right. And what's possible is, is orders of magnitude simpler. And so anyone who's going to predict what you're going to do is going to have to do that anyway. But then they're also going to do this whole extra step of predicting what you'll do. And what I want to and that's inside the predictive models already. So I'm going to say, no, just stop the modeling process here. Stop right. the modeling process before you've made the prediction. 
And let's just look at the at, at the at the geometry of opportunity, at where people can go and how this proposed project, whatever it is, changes where people can go, by which I mean makes people free or less free. So, you know, if I want to say this provocatively, I would say transportation planning is freedom planning. And so, by the way, it's land use planning, because we, in the course of doing those things, we are deciding who will be free and how free they will be. When we're talking about any kind of freedom that requires it. Let me give an example, and you can tell me if I'm understanding or not. I live in my house, and right now, if I want groceries, I have two options. I can get in my car and drive a significant distance to a grocery store out on the edge of town. I guess I can pick what time of day I go and, and when I make that trip, but that's, that's one option I have. The second option I have is I can order my groceries through a service and right. have them delivered to me. The idea that I would walk to the grocery store is theoretically possible, but you know, it's 25 below in Minnesota. That would take an hour and a half each direction. The bridge is not plowed on the sidewalk. Yeah. You know, it, it, there's no there's no actually physical way to get there. Biking is a little bit more possible, but you know, certainly the the systems are not in place to make that happen or make that. So so my freedom is is constrained both by the transportation options available to me and also the physical location of that grocery store in relative to, to my house. Is that, is that a fair way to summarize? Yes, exactly. Yeah. If that's good, what are, what are the like options in that scenario then for increasing my level of freedom? Like, look, cause right now the, the engineer would say, well, we would widen the road then to make it easier for you to get out to the, right. the grocery store. What, what other options, if you're working with the actual physical constraints of the place, what other options should be on, on the table? Well, I think the key issue there is, in many cases, in cities of, of the sort of size and scale that, that you live in, Chuck, especially, driving is going to be the fastest way to go places. And at that scale, the question becomes, and where that is the case, and where, the, where driving doesn't have enormous downside impacts on the community like it has in denser cities, it would probably be fair to say in this situation, we need to focus on the freedom of people who don't have that option. Sure. Uh, who are going to be much more deeply impacted. There's a lot of people in my city for whom not only is the car prohibitive, but even ordering the groceries is cost prohibitive. Yeah. So those are not options open to them. Yeah. Well, yeah. And then the other thing, of course, you have to, you have to address is that whatever planners and whatever grocery store chain chose, made the decision that your only grocery should be, I'm imagining, out on the bypass where you have to run across the bypass and walk across the parking lot to get to it. And, you know, very deliberately separated from the parts of the city that people can walk around in. At some point you have to say, well, that's, you have to diagnose this and say, this is not really a transport problem. This is really a language problem. Because if the transport solution is cycling or public transit, and the grocery store is in a place that is just irredeemably hostile to those things, and many of them are. And then this is going to be a land use problem. And by the way, one of the things that I'm finding this tool really powerful for is being able to push back when people try to blame transportation planners for land use problems. Right. Because I can diagnose them, you know, much more effectively and say, no, there's no way. 
there's there's no way that that you're going to solve this problem with transportation service. You need to put the grocery store in different places. Right. You conclude this article with two central arguments for why planners and 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 why those people working on projects should should center on freedom. And and one of them feels like a, a marketing idea that people care about freedom. But the other one seems like a very practical engineering kind of diagnosis, which is that freedom is is predictable because we can uh, you know quantify it based on geometry. Can you talk about both of those? The the idea that if we want change to happen, we we almost need to I appreciate the the appeal to the less fortunate in the community, but that's not always the motivating thing when we're making large capital investments, even in places where we would like it to be. Why is freedom a good kind of marker in the ground for us to to organize around? And then do you think we can move the engineering and the technical professions to actually adopt this? Well, I think it's a long journey. The idea behind freedom is that we as analysts and engineers do less. We make fewer claims about the outcomes of projects, especially large capital projects over large periods of time. I personally am mostly doing short-term work. I'm mostly doing you know, redesigns of bus networks on a two- or three-year horizon. But in any case, the fundamental idea is let us stop thinking about the population as little um, monads running around inside of our model who are going to do what we predict them to do. And let's think of them instead as autonomous agents with the ability to make free choices that will surprise us. And you know that you've given people freedom if they've surprised you. <laughs> right. Um, because if they just do what you predicted they would do, then, that, then you probably didn't really give them freedom. One of my other favorite quotes in this piece, you write, prediction and freedom are opposites. To the extent that we can predict your behavior, you are not free. Right. So, you know, the funny way to think about this is, you know, when I have a group of young people in the audience, people in the 20s and 30s, I will always say, now, you have to recognize that the, the, whole, the whole standard methodology for defining our large infrastructure is based on our belief that we can predict 20, 30 years in the future, which is to say, it is based on our certainty that when you are the age your parents are now, you will behave exactly the way they do. <laughs> We must yeah. use people's behavior today as our model for people's behavior 25 years from now, which is exactly like saying that we are assuming you are a copy of your parents. Right. Nobody in their 20s wants to hear that. And no, they don't. They shouldn't. It's, and they shouldn't. That's not how the world should work, but that's how we do it. And so well, there's some surprising practicality to this. In my field, um, public transit, um, expanding freedom expands ridership pretty reliably. And again, this should, you shouldn't really need to do an experiment. Yes, when I expand where people can get to in a reasonable amount of time, that's logically equivalent to saying that on average, a person looking up a trip on a, in trip planning software is more likely to find that the time is reasonable. Those are the same thing mathematically. And so, of course, right, it's going to be higher. More people are going to find the transit station before you. It is also... It is access to opportunity, which is a huge focal point for all kinds of equity and civil rights. Right? That's what we need to be quantifying. We are not helping disadvantaged communities by predicting them. <laughs> We're helping them by liberating them. And I think many of them understand that. 
it has all these kinds of powers and it's easier to do than predictive modeling. And if you're doing predictive modeling, you're really already doing it. So it's really just not a matter of do something different. It's a matter of stop sooner and report out you know, what you found about what people can do before you go and predict what they will do. I um, vacillate between uh, fatalism and optimism. I think sometimes when I engage with the big project purveyors and and look where some of the the large capital expenditures are going, I, I get very frustrated. Uh, when I turn around and I talk to mayors and I talk to city council members and I, I I talk to people like you who are on the front lines doing some of the best work in, in the world, I grow more optimistic because it does seem like there's a momentum for change and reform and, and doing things different. Where do you fall on that spectrum most often? To some extent, it's my job to keep those feelings to myself as a consultant, I think. <laughs> I, mean, I have a, a personality disposition on the optimism spe- pessimism spectrum. And it's kind of my job not to bring that to work on some level. You know, I'm going into a space where I'm going to try to help a community make something happen. And my job is to define the space of possibility and to help people feel liberated within that space to make choices and understand their consequences. And if I were to come at that from a stance of either optimism or pessimism, I'd just be predicting more, wouldn't I? I'd be predicting things that I have no business predicting. Right. So I guess that's my stance on it. I am certainly who I am as a personality, and it's not hard to discover those aspects of my personality if you've been looking for them. But optimism, Neil Stevenson says something like this, optimism and pessimism both imply that it's all going to happen without us and the human agency won't make the difference. And I, Which, I want to uh, create a space where, no, we will make the difference. Right. That's beautiful. What's your favorite Shakespeare play? Oh, God. It's, I'm not going to ask you who your favorite child is. Come on. <laughs> 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 uh, that's a beautiful answer. I, I will take that as a, as, a, as a perfect answer. It would be like asking me, I think, my favorite Beatles song, right? Exactly. Like, it, de- it depends on the mood I'm in and uh, who I'm jamming with and, and whatever. Yeah. Jarrett Walker, if you're not reading his, his website... Uh, you really need to be. It's it's human transit. Is it humantransit.com? Is that it's bookmarked on my thing? Dot org. Dot org. Got it. We'll make sure that that's updated and people can get to that. Is, is there any place else that people should be following you? Where, where are you uh, most accessible? I'm uh, I'm there and I'm on Twitter at human transit. And please do yourself a favor. If you've not read the book, Human Transit, uh, go out and get a copy. It's a very easy read. It's very accessible and it will help you, particularly if you don't have a deep appreciation for transit, I think it will help you develop one. Jared, thanks so much for taking the time. Hey, always a pleasure, Chuck. Thanks so much. It's it's delightful to chat. And thanks everybody for listening. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Take care. They know that America's one big pothole right now. Bill, 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 Bill. That's a story. Chuck Marone, this has been fascinating. 
I like you. I like your vision of the of the world. The United Nations Earth Summit Agenda 21. Yeah.